Welcome to Trafe, a debatably Jewish podcast. Episode 18, Dijwit Achtzik. I mean, it's also the Chai episode. It's true. I buried the lead a little bit. Yeah, so understood in various schools of Jewish thought as the luckiest episode. Do you have any idea why? There's an understanding uh, within Jewish thought that different Hebrew characters have distinct numerical values. And if you add up the numerical values of different words, you get particular numbers. And so if you add up the word high, which means life, it comes to the value of 18. There you have it. And so this is a recurring number and concept within a lot of Jewish mysticism and other areas of Jewish thought. Now, this is going to say a lot, I guess, about my relationship to Jewish mysticism, but I think that I've encountered 18 the most in the context of bar and bar mitzvah gifts. Oh, you're talking about like people give you money in $18 sums? Yeah, I don't actually know how to describe 18, 36, 72. What's the... I don't know. Single, double, triple chai. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Where else have you encountered chai in your life, David? Okay, so I grew up in Thornhill, like I mentioned before on the show. Again, this might be very regional and very specific to a particular time in the early 2000s, but this stereotype of this kind of high school boy that would spike up their hair, open up their shirts, and wear a particular style of necklace, depending on their ethnicity. Are are you familiar with this, Sam? I am. The Jewish version of this bro would wear two letters that spell out chai in Hebrew on the end of their necklace. I certainly spent a bunch of time in high school trying to spike my hair and failed miserably. Yeah, well, it's, it's a probably a good thing you weren't able to achieve it because you might have ended up in the Tim Hortons parking lot with the rest of them watching the car engines rev. Okay, I have no idea how to smoothly seg out of that, but I think it's high time that Trafe Podcast gives you a breaking news update. What is the breaking news for people? So I don't know if it's breaking so much as maybe never before revealed. I've got a scoop. What's the scoop? The scoop has to do with a high-ranking member of the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. Oh, oh, and for our American listeners, they're kind of at the top of the top-down structure of the institutional Jewish community in Canada. They're also an Israel lobby. Imagine APAC meets the Federation system. So wait, what's what's the scoop? Well, who have we been interacting with on the Trafe Twitter account? Oh, you're t- <laughs> are you talking about the exchange I have with Luciano? The one, the only, Luciano Del Negro. For people listening and don't haven't understood anything we've said in the past five minutes, Luciano Del Negro, high-ranking member of this organization, has been rumored to, in a previous era of his life, uh, have been a Maoist and specifically a third-worldist doing a lot of organizing work in the 1970s around this in Montreal. He confirmed that to us via Twitter, when he said, and I'm quoting here, true, a Maoist or Marxist-Leninist, and later on an Italian Euro-communist. But then he finishes off, but I had a good reason, as I was born Catholic, lol. Now, do you have any idea what an Italian Euro-communist means? That means nothing to me. Okay. Um, although the phrase Euro-communist sounds pretty cool. If anyone has any hot tips on what an Italian Euro-communist is, please let us know. So that piece of hyper-specific Montreal-based information out of the way, what do we have on the show today, Sam? We have quite the show lined up this week. For the news segment today, we spoke with a writer from the Jewish Daily Forward about the corruption scandals in New York City politics that reach from the mayor's office to Borough Park in Williamsburg, which are deeply Hasidic neighborhoods. 
Yeah, we actually have a double interview on this episode. We're talking both with Leo Ferguson as well as Haruta Yab. Leo was an organizer for the recent Jews of Color convening that happened in New York City at the beginning of May. And Heru is an activist based in Montreal that traveled to that convening. And both of them are going to tell us a bit about their respective experiences. With that being said, this is your episode of Trafe for the 17th of ER 5776. On the last episode of Trafe Podcast, we had a little fun talking about a Yiddish gang in Borough Park. Yeah, we, we were talking about this in the Shkoyach section of the show, which uh, has a bit of a different tone than all the other parts of the show. It's a bit sillier, make a lot of jokes, just kind of a lot of back and forth. Uh, David, I thought we weren't describing what Shkoyach was. <laughs> well, yeah, we're not talking about Shkoyach anymore. But the reason I'm mentioning this is that we really buried the lead on this one. There's this guy named Jeremy Reichberg, whose nephew was a part of this gang. And the reason that this gang did not face any legal repercussions for- Allegedly. Their- Allegedly, the reason this gang did not face any legal repercussions for their activities, including assaulting random people on the street, was because Jeremy Reichberg had a cozy relationship with high-ranking officials in the NYPD and was investigated in a bribery probe. Now, in the several days that followed the release of that episode, some more information has come out about these machers in the Borough Park community, their relationship to the NYPD, their relationship to the mayor of New York City, yeah, I mean, this has exploded within the New York press. There's there's photos of members of the Orthodox community on the front of New York City tabloids on a daily basis. It's being reported in the New York Times and, and national newspapers. It's become an extremely big story. So we've read a little bit about it, but we thought that the best course of action would be to reach out to someone who's been covering it for The Forward. Yeah, so we're joined on the line now by Josh Nathan Kazis, who's a staff writer at The Forward. Uh, thanks for joining us, Josh. Thank you. So we've invited you on to talk about your piece in the forward that came out in early May, wondering if you could describe the gist of it for people who didn't read it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the basic point here is that the mayor of New York City, uh, Bill de Blasio, has worked over really his entire political career to develop very strong relationship with the Orthodox community. And the reason for that has a lot to do, I think, with the demographics and geographies of New York City. De Blasio is a progressive, but the city council district, which he represented for a number of years, is not only sort of progressive Brooklyn, it's also parts of Borough Park, which is a largely orthodox, increasingly ultra-orthodox part of the city. And while they built these relationships, genuine relationships with the orthodox community, and the people that really like them, now, even now if you walk down the street in Borough Park, you'll see that the trash cans on the sidewalk, say, like, provided by council member Bill de Blasio. Then when he ran for mayor, he, again, made this concerted effort to reach out to the Orthodox. And part of why that was notable was that his predecessor, Michael Bloomberg, although Jewish, did not have a particularly good relationship with the Orthodox community, particularly by the end of his tenure. He had done a number of things they didn't like, but the basic backstory here is de Blasio has really gone out of his way on to court the Hasidic community. So that article that you're talking about uh, is only one of a series that you've written following the scandal. And for people listening who are outside of the New York area, can you give people a bit of a broad description about what's happening in terms of this investigation right now? What it appears is that federal investigators are looking at relationships between two Orthodox businessmen in particular and high-ranking members of the NYPD press. What's interesting about the Orthodox guys is they're two very different people. Jonah Rechnitz is like an Upper West Side. They went to Yeshiva University, 
sort of centrist Orthodox, and Jeremy Reichberg. The other one is a, is a borough park member of the city community. The Jewish community, the Hasidic community, spends a lot of time working on government relations, and there's a lot of people who are sort of specialized in building these relationships with police, with elected officials. These guys were not the official outreachers for any part of the Jewish community. Reichberg, in particular, was known in Borough Park for spending a lot of time with the police, hanging out at the precinct house there, but he was not, for instance, a member of the Shomrim, which is the Hasidic Security Patrol in Borough Park, which has very, very close relationships with that precinct. So what is interesting and what may tie this to some bigger stories is that both Reichberg and Rechnitz were donors to the mayor, Bill de Blasio. So one of the questions that's been raised is that whether all this negative attention on these two Orthodox men who have close ties to the mayor will impact the broader relationship that de Blasio has worked on building as all these investigations are swirling around making the front page of the tabloids here nearly every day. It seems like a lot of the FBI attention in their investigation of the New York Police Department is centering on the 66th Precinct, which contains Borough Park, uh, Midwood, and Kensington, all heavily Orthodox neighborhoods. And again, we're based in Montreal. We don't have a lot of framework to understand New York City and, and Brooklyn politics. Can you explain to people a bit of the context of the 66th Precinct and its relationship to the Orthodox community? Yeah, the 66th Precinct, as it's called, is this very interesting place. You know, the structure of the police department in New York is that you have the department, and then you have these precincts in each neighborhood, and each precinct has a commanding officer who stays in that neighborhood for a couple of years. And during that time, it's their job to build relationships with important leaders in the community. And for, I guess, nearly two decades, uh, one of the most important sort of liaison groups between the community, the Orthodox community in Borough Park, and the 66 Precinct is what's called the Shomrim. They're a group of, I believe, 100 or so guys who have walkie-talkies. A lot of their cars have sirens on them, and they have an emergency line. And if you're a resident of Borough Park and you see a crime taking place, you need assistance of some sort, you can call them, and they will show up. And they have worked very hard over the years to have close relationships with the police. Local Shomrim groups exist throughout New York City. So there's one in the Lubavitch community in Crown Heights. There's one in the Hasidic community in Williamsburg. There's one in Flatbush, which is another Orthodox neighborhood. Um, the Borough Park one seems to have particularly close ties with the precinct. Uh, I spoke with one former commanding officer who said that he thought that the relationship should be a model for police community relations across the city. But you can also find people who will argue that the Shomrim and Borough Park have accreted too much power by virtue of these relationships. There was also mentioned a few days ago about the three, uh, what appeared to be members of the Shomrim who beat up someone named Taj Peterson in Williamsburg a couple years ago, and it seemed like they weren't facing, they weren't going to face any jail time for the violence uh, enacted on him. I was wondering if you could talk about how that connects to all this. Yeah, I don't know so much about that case. We certainly followed it at the time, and I saw the story you're talking about. It's important to note, I believe, they were not members of the Borough Park Shomrim, but another Shomrim group, and these groups, although they have the same name, are not connected in any way. Okay. Um, so they have different hierarchies, different leaderships. But there are certainly are questions raised in that story about why those men weren't charged, but I, I don't have any answers. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think again for listeners outside of this context, I think it is important to say that uh, the the interactions between Shomrim and people outside of the Jewish community has been very tense. There's been series of incidents over the last few years where there are racially motivated attacks. The Shomrim would consistently get off after engaging in this, and throughout this investigation, one of the through lines seems to be talking about the way that the Orthodox Jewish community is trying to achieve autonomy in the way that different levels of government are interacting with that request? I think, I think that the autonomy point is interesting. The Shomrim is not the only group of its kind that exists in Orthodox communities. In Brooklyn, you also have Hatsola, which are Jewish ambulance services. You have Misaskim, which will help you in emergencies. They've created a whole network of these institutions, and I think that those institutions are sort of essential to the social structure that they've created, and I, I, I don't see that changing. The, the only piece of this investigation, as far as I know, that actually touches the Shomrim is the arrest of a former member who is accused of bribing police to get gun permits. But as far as I can tell at this point, that's, that's really the only intersection between the Shomrim and all these news stories about what's going on between the Orthodox community and the police. So again, we're talking about a situation where there are members of the Orthodox community who are being accused by the FBI of bribing NYPD officials. And, and I'm, wondering, I'm wondering if you're aware of what's been happening on the NYPD side of the scandal. I mean, what we do know is that a hiring police officer committed suicide the other week, and there were news reports that that came after he was interviewed about this case. It was quite tragic. The latest number of officers who have been asked to hand in their guns and badges at this point is 10, but I don't, I don't know much more than that. So some of the articles that you write, I would assume, end up being consumed a lot more by a Jewish-oriented readership to a certain extent. Do you feel like there's any difference in coverage, kind of how you write about things or how you see these issues being covered by the non-Jewish press? Look, I mean, th- these stories have been huge news in New York. I mean, the, the Post, the Daily News, the New York Times, everybody's covering this stuff. I think our, our angle is different because we're looking at this in terms of its impact on the Orthodox community and the Jewish community at large. But at this point, I think everybody's just trying to figure out what's going on and how it connects to a number of other things going on in city politics at this point. Okay, well, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Why is this night different from all other nights? It's time for Skoyach. Skoyach. It's our Chai Skoyach. Uh, yeah, but does that, does that mean anything? I have no idea, David. Well, I figured that we should mark it in some way. Yeah, we can make it mean something. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's our, like, you know how there's different... I think it's a British thing where there's different types of birthdays and gifts. You Let's know? not do a British thing. Well, I mean, hear me out. It's like like you have like your box birthday or something or your like paper anniversary. Like maybe our high shkoyach can be like our gold shkoyach. Hmm. Don't really understand that entirely, but also still pretty hesitant about the whole British thing. I mean, I have to say um, apologies to the, I think the only British person we've talked to on the show, which is Joseph Finley, that I, I, I do have an uh, embedded bias against all things British. I was very happy that he did the interview with us. Yeah, me too. I'm very appreciative. I feel like he would have enough nuance to understand the difference between the nation that I'm opposing and all that it stood for and its, its long history in him. So let's just leave it at that. Okay, so the Chayish Goyach is 
the 18th Shkoyach, and we are not going to describe it in any way, shape, or form because the oh. people have spoken. Since the last episode, we've received only more input that we should not describe what the segment's all about, uh, so we won't. Thank you, everyone, for telling me that I was wrong. It makes me feel great. And, I appreciate uh, it. If you'd like to uh, participate, just follow the hashtag DavidWasRight. <laughs> um, so, Sam, what's your Shkoyach for this week? You know, I feel like I start Shkoyach a bunch, so I'm going to ask you. Okay. My Shkoyach for this week goes to a new initiative that was reported on recently by, of course, our friends, the Canadian Jewish News. What would we do without you? We would be losing a lot in the Canadian Jewish News. If it they... would be Rafe or Afe. It would be it would be Rafe? Or Afe. I don't understand. I'm taking away the first or second letter of the name of the podcast. I mean, that's interesting from an artistic perspective. Rafe? just the subtracting of letters but the initiative that i'm talking about is one that's going to be happening all this month in may organized by the cor the council of orthodox rabbis there the david month- i actually didn't know that that was the acronym because there are other kashrut labels uh, hash- i don't know hash- thank you hash- what did you think it was uh, an acronym for? i have no idea well where i should say where i grew up the presence and power of cor was definitely felt it's also important to identify the fact that these Hersha groups, is it, would that be the right terminology? Yeah, yeah, the, they're organizations. Okay, the organizations. They they, 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 they they have tremendous power and they fight with each other. Yeah, well, for, for listeners who are unfamiliar with the world of kosher labeling, when you buy a food product as a practicing Jew, an Orthodox Jew, it's generally understood that you need the approval of some rabbinic council on that food. If you go to a restaurant, they have to be approved similarly. And so these organizations have large amounts of power over what is able to be bought and sold within the Jewish community. Thanks for the Jewish content, David. So in the month of May this year, all around the greater Toronto area, they're organizing something called Kosher Restaurant Month. Huh. And do you, uh, do we, just before we go any further, I'm just wondering, is this because kosher restaurants are in decline? Not according to the Canadian Jewish News. In fact, according to them, the demand for kosher food is only rising, but Kosher Restaurant Month was something that happened once in 2013, and they're having it again for reasons unclear, because everything that the COR does is done through this strange central committee, top-down structural rulings. I just don't entirely understand, is this going to be like Poutine Week in Montreal, where you get some kind of discounted price for going to all the kosher food restaurants? It definitely is, but Mm. I would imagine a little less fun and discounted, because all that this means is that you get 10% off at some kosher restaurants. I mean, 10% isn't bad. It's not bad, but it's not a lot. It's not a lot, true. But the part that... I just kind of love is that reading through this Canadian Jewish News article, you had quotes from multiple parties. You had quotes from people involved in the COR. You had quotes from owners of Jewish restaurants. And without fail, every single quote was the most diplomatic, drained of any sincere intention, like it was a Soviet press release. Uh, at one point, I think there was a the guy, one of the guys from the COR just said, we want to do our part to have people visit their local kosher restaurants. Like Gotta hear both sides. That was the quote from a person. Like, it wasn't attributed to an organization. A person said that. Okay, so just to clarify, you are giving this to the press release or to the COR Kosher Restaurant Month? I or... think I should maybe clarify that it's not necessarily to the month itself. It's the particular manner in which the rollout of this promotional month is unfolding. To me, reflecting the very particular gray, bureaucratic... It's centrally controlled manner that is inherent to all things COR. So growing up in that community, do you have any hot gossip on the uh, Hersher scene? 
I, I think the only thing I can say is that I do recall a time when there was a prominent organization that gave hexers to restaurants or essentially went to war with one restaurant that didn't want to pay a higher rate. And in the process of this war made rulings on the kashrut of different types of produce that was used heavily at that restaurant as a way of further sabotaging it. That makes sense. So anyway, my square for today is, I suppose, a bit of a backhanded one at the organization COR. And I think the big takeaway is don't mess with Hechsher labels. Definitely. Uh, so Sam, what's your sky for today? Raisin challah. Ra- really? Like, Ra- like a legitimate... Raisin challah. Like you like raisin challah. I really like raisin challah. And I knew this was going to be contentious, and so I'm prepared. But I just wanted to put this out there, that raisin challah is a tremendous kind of food. Um... Now, I understand that you're a vegan. <laughs> so I understand that your veganness might prevent you from <laughs> having ever experienced the marvels that are raisin challah. No, of course not. I've had raisin challah. Aren't there oof in, in raisin challah? Yeah, but when I was growing up, I mean, first I should say it's despicable. The institution of raisin challah should be abolished. One sec, slow down. Uh, I think we should, for the listener's sake, we should get around the veganism and then we can move on to your first horrible of all, opinions. You're not 62 years old. There's no believable way you call it veganism. Okay, so when did you start becoming a vegan again? In my early 20s. Really? I thought it was earlier. Nope. Thought you were one of those like twelve-year-old vegans. Anyway, okay. The point being, uh, you had raisin challah until you became a vegan. Well, no, I had access to raisin challah. Unfortunately, I'd be I'd go out for a Shabbos lunch at some family friend's house. You'd be sitting around. They'd hand out the pieces of the bread that you're required to eat under Jewish law as a part of the ritual. And I would take the raisins out of my challah because I didn't want to eat this monstrosity of a bread. Let it be known, David, there were two kinds of people growing up. There were people who ate raisin challah and there were people who took the raisins out of the raisin challah and ate the empty bread. Yeah, I would call them serious bread lovers. All right. I really think your orientation towards food is skewed by your veganism, but I'm just going to take a moment to reflect on the important role that raisin challah played in my life. Oh, you should definitely. As a, as a non-vegan. Um, I also would like to disentangle the raisin bread from raisin challah. Uh, challah is, well, it's challah bread. While challah might be bread, not all bread is challah. That is correct. I'm wondering if challah comes from the Levant as much as it does from Europe. What's the situation? I thought it was European. Do we think it is? I don't know. I yeah, no neither of us know. Back up here. But I don't think that they have raisins in Europe. But they, they have vineyards. Oh, they have grapes. All right. Well, just remember Friday nights, they had this whole system where they made parents pay money for challahs, and then you would bring them home hmm. at Friday afternoon so okay. to, to help the parents avoid having to pick up challahs every week. So every now and then, my, I was fortunate enough to come home and see Raisin Challah, because I only brought home regular challah on Friday afternoons. And I just remembered how excited I was to have the sweetness of the Raisin Challah eating experience. And then I just remember the next day, put some cream cheese on that, maybe some maple syrup. It was just a general, like, incredibly tasting experience. Oh, I'm, I'm glad you had that experience, but I would like to comment on the impulse behind the decision to include maple syrup. And I think part of that impulse has to do with the fact that perhaps you were craving some sort of baked confectionery, some sort of dessert, <laughs> perhaps, something that a raisin might suggest is in store for you rather than a piece of bread, which is not a sweet dessert. Listen, David, I know you like hard borders, and I understand that maybe with veganism, you have your rigid politics, and you, you like, like to identify and classify things in certain ways. But I think that Raisin Challah emphasizes and really embraces an idea of, of thinking outside of the box, David, and, and, and not respecting certain kinds of boundaries. Can you tell us a bit more about why you felt like giving your shkoyach to Raisin Challah this week? 
Listen, David, I knew it was going to be a controversial topic. I wanted to tell other people that they didn't have to sit at the table and act like they're weird friends who are picking raisins out of challahs, but could just eat the challah in its entirety with the raisins and enjoy it. I just want to be clear to the listener that I'm not on team raisin here. Agree to disagree, but I also think that your um, palate might be skewed by your veganism. But oh, I never like raisin challah. If you've been on the Jewish internet in the last few weeks, you've probably come across reference to, articles about, discussions around, the Jews of Color convening that took place in New York City. The event was organized by a bunch of groups and organizations, Friend of the Podcast, Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, as well as the Jewish Multiracial Network and Ben the Ark. Yeah, if you go to jewschool.com, you can actually see a series of articles uh, written by people who are participating in the convening, talking about their experiences, and also about why it was felt to be so necessary. We were actually very lucky to have been able to get in touch with two people who participated and helped organize the convening, and we're going to play our interviews with both of those people. Yeah, the first interview is with Leo Ferguson, who is one of the organizers of the convening in New York, and uh, the second interview is with Hirut Yab, a local Montreal activist who attended the convening. Hello? Hey, Leo, it's Sam. David is also in the studio, if you hear another voice. Hello. Which you okay. probably will. Hi. So, Leah, would you mind just telling people a bit about who you are? Yeah, for sure. So, I am the community and communications organizer at Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, also known as JFridge, here in New York City. I've been here in the position about two years, I think, now. Um, before that, I was volunteering with JFridge, working on our police accountability campaign, which I can come back to and I can talk more about. And before that, I have, you know, done different things. I worked at a, another nonprofit for a number of years while also just being generally interested in social justice work and have, a, you know, a background in doing different kinds of trainings and leading affinity groups on internalized racism and internalized depression and work like that. Before that, as I mentioned to you guys uh, before we got started, I, you know, it was a musician and in some ways sort of really first got politicized, had my first exposure to radical political organizing and activism through music, through being in a music scene that had a lot of radical punk activist work when I was in high school and college. I have to ask a bit in more detail, though, about the punk scene that you're describing, since I also come from mm -hmm. a very, very similar background. Oh, cool. So I was in a band that played in sort of the like Riot Girl and also DC emo hardcore punk scene in the, the 90s. So that's, that's oh. that background. Okay, we could just change the whole interview if you guys want. I'll leave. You guys can... <laughs> yeah, we could just... <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of overlap. Yeah, I have a thousand questions about this, but I'll totally table them for later. Well, I guess we brought you on to talk about the Jews of Color convening. And I guess to start off with, could you discuss the genesis or kind of the context within which it emerged? It's funny, like an, an idea like this, you know, a huge project like this that has so many people involved and went on from, for so long. I like I honestly almost can't even remember exactly, you know, like to name the moment that we were like, hey, you know, we should do a convening. I think it was something that came from a few different people's minds all kind of at the same time. You know, I 
when I came into JFridge, I came in the door committed and excited about doing this work. But it looked very different then, and it's, it's almost hard to believe how quickly things changed, you know, how, how much has changed just at JFridge and in sort of the national Jews of Color scene just over the past couple of years. Uh, when I came in, we, we started growing our caucus of Jews of Color and really began thinking more intensely about what we needed to do to push the conversation forward around this community. And one of the things that's most challenging about working with Jews of Color is just that we're sort of few and far between. There's tons of us out there, but we're hard to find if you don't know where to look. And so just the sheer challenge of getting a critical mass of people together in the room is something that I think is a, is a challenge for this community. I think people often feel really isolated, especially outside of New York City. I hear all the time from folks who are the only Jew of color that they know or the only person in their community or their town or the Jewish institution. So just the basic thing of getting folks together to build community and get to sort of start to really talk about this felt like a priority. And along the way, some lovely partners and friends started saying you should do a convening. And so that idea just started blossoming and, you know, Originally, we were thinking about doing something probably a lot smaller than what we did. Um, but once we sort of became committed to this idea and started talking about it and doing a little bit of planning and reaching out to folks and throwing that idea around, we heard back from the Jewish Multiracial Network uh, about the fact that they were also planning to do something like that, also probably something a little bit smaller and planning to do it at the same time as we were planning to do ours. And so that immediately led to a conversation about joining forces. And, and that's basically the, the genesis of it. Once we decided to do it together, then a lot of possibilities opened up in terms of making it something bigger and more ambitious. Um, and that was very exciting because I think scale was itself a positive value in this, that having, having the community be able to look at itself and sort of really see a, a sort of a critical mass of folks gathered together, all thinking collectively about JOC identity and thinking collectively about racial justice and about the state of racial justice in the Jewish community just felt like something that would really benefit from being larger. And so that's how it started. Could you talk a little bit more about the change or the transformation that you described at the beginning of your last answer in terms of how JFREG and, and the community more broadly has looked different in the last couple of years? So talking first about JFRIDGE, when I first came into JFRIDGE, it was an organization that was overwhelmingly white Ashkenazi Jews and had been, you know, at that point, I guess, 23 years since it was founded. And, and that it's directly tied to the fact that JFRIDGE's organizing model was built around solidarity organizing. Jews for Racial and Economic Justice is now 25 years old, and for a quarter century, it's been organizing the Jewish community to take action for racial and economic justice in New York City in close and deep partnership with other community-based social justice organizations, primarily organizations led by and working for low-income communities of color. And so, you know, what that means on the ground is that we go out and we try to get Jews, both as institutions and as individuals, to show up and be out in the streets and take meaningful action to support concrete changes in policy and the economic and political lives of New Yorkers who are most directly targeted by oppression. So solidarity organizing is you know, essentially the idea that white Ashkenazi Jews were not primarily the targets of economic and racial oppression in New York. That was something that was being faced by low-income communities of color. 
So it was mobilizing white, white Ashkenazi Jews to show up on behalf of our partner organizations. And Jay Fridge has done this work very powerfully for a long time. I think has become deeply respected and trusted by our partner organizations in campaign after campaign. But it also meant that it was not necessarily a welcoming home for Jewish people of color for a lot of different reasons, but certainly resources being chief among them. Jay Fridge just hadn't been able to do the work to build in this community. And I think because of the organizing model that Jay Fridge had, it wasn't necessarily exactly clear what it would mean to build in this community. So when I came on board, partly reflecting the fact that there were some additional, that Jay Fridge had grown and that there was enough resource to, to hire me, I was able to really put the time in to start reaching out and building this community and building it as a community within a community, that we were building a caucus within Jay Fridge that was going to be able to sort of be more thoughtful and deliberate and autonomous in thinking about what Jews of color needed to feel at home in this Jewish organization. So that's the sort of the Jay Fridge piece of this. I think the larger shift that really happened was probably because of Black Lives Matter more than anything else. The vision and the power and the reach of that movement really changed the landscape of racial justice organizing in the United States and has clearly moved that conversation in a powerful new direction and has certainly made racial justice something that people are thinking about. And so within the Jewish community, you started to see a renewed interest in Jews of color. I feel like all over the Jewish press, I was seeing articles every other month about Jews of color. And that reflected a sort of a new opening, a new possibility to engage this conversation. I think the thing that motivated the convening and has really sort of been one of the driving features of the work that we're doing at Jayfridge has been a frustration with what that conversation has looked like. Uh, like you're talking a bit about the the Jewish media and the shift in Jewish media. And, and, and I'm just wondering yeah. if to you that's representative of a broader shift coming from the institutional Jewish community in terms of creating more space for Jews of color. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think the answer, the short answer is yes, that conversation is clearly not just happening in media spaces, but there's definitely been a lot more interest, a lot more requests for speakers, advice, more events, programs. You know, I, I think that that is absolutely true. I think that the catch is that it isn't always the most thoughtful. I think that it's wonderful that there is this interest. And the fact that there's this interest is part of what made us try to seize this moment for the convening. But the reality is that the conversation around Jews of color, I think more than anything else, reflects just how little attention has been paid to this community and certainly also reflects just how disconnected a lot of mainstream Jewish institutions have become from racial justice movements in this country. What you saw in the mainstream Jewish community was a preoccupation with just the basic task of educating white Jews on who Jews of color are. A lot of it was focused on personal storytelling that was sort of decontextualized and depoliticized. And also a lot of the conversation has been stuck around questions of inclusion and diversity. You know, I think an important thing to say is that this work is not new. There have been pioneers like Yvila McCoy, April Baskin, Aurora Levins Morales working and talking about JOC identity for many, many years and, and many other folks. They have tried mightily to move this community to the forefront of 
the conversation around what the Jewish community is and what its obligations are. And it's just been a huge struggle. There's been a lack of interest. There's been an enormous amount of racism and resistance. And there's been a profound lack of resources. It's incredibly hard to fund this work. And it's not something that Jewish institutions have been particularly interested in doing. And so what you had, I think what, you, you know, what we've seen over the past couple of years is you had this renewed interest. You had a lot more coverage of Jews of color, a lot more talking about Jews of color from the Jewish press and in Jewish institutions. But the conversation was almost entirely about just what it means to get Jews of color in the door of a synagogue, uh, in the door of a Jewish organization, and have them feel like there's any understanding that, they, that they're meant to be there that basic piece of just feeling like I am at home in my community, I am welcomed by my community, my, my community understands me. It is incredibly important. It is an incredibly important part of the conversation, and it's a prerequisite to Jews of color feeling like they have a home in the Jewish community, that when they show up to a Jewish event or to a, a synagogue, that they're not being asked to leave, that they're not having their, their right to be there questioned by the folks who meet them at the door. And so that work is important and it is vital and it is a prerequisite for anything else, but it's not sufficient. And in many ways, the driving thesis behind the convening and, and behind a lot of my work uh, with Jfridge has been about pushing that conversation forward and moving it to the next level. Because the reality is that no matter how welcoming and nice your Jewish institutional experience or your Jewish communal experiences, when we walk out of the doors of that institution, we become people of color in America who are facing mass incarceration and deportation and endless economic crisis, discriminatory and abusive uh, policing and state violence, anti-Arab racism in the midst of a refugee crisis and any number of other facts of life of being a person of color in America. And the idea that we could simply bifurcate our lives and still feel like whole people in the face of that is just is wrong. So what that means is that we need white Jews, white Ashkenazi Jews, to become active participants in the struggle for racial justice. That's the only way for Jewish people of color to feel truly held by their community, to know that all Jews have our backs in the face of this, you know, our, our existence in a, a country that is largely characterized by racism is sort of the basic the condition for true inclusion of Jews of color. And that's where the conversation needs to go. Well, it was really great to meet you over the phone. Thanks again for talking to us about all this. Thank you so, so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Really wonderful to talk to you. Hello? Hi, Haru. Hey. Hey, it's David calling. And I'm Sam. Oh, hi, Sam. Hey. Nice to meet you. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Haru. Uh, To start it off, could you tell people a bit about uh, who you are? Okay. So my name is Hirut Eyob, and I'm actually a reproductive justice advocate. And uh, I'm also an Ethiopian Jew. Immigrated to Canada around the age of seven, and I've been working as a doula and a reproductive justice activist. I'm also a lactation consultant and do a lot of justice work around birth. And uh, I, yes, I reside in Montreal. And so uh, here you participated in the Jews of Color National Convening that recently happened in New York. I did, and it was wonderful. My sister was very resistant to the idea of coming to the gatherings with me because she thought, oh, maybe this is a cultish thing. But what 
she took away from it was that it was in the synagogue that it was taking place. This was the first time where she felt that she could pray and be completely spiritually grounded because she didn't have to worry around her or thinking about her. And she is someone who went through the Jewish school, you know, had a very strong Jewish identity, and all the time she never really felt this experience of being in a space and spiritually grounded because of who was around her. And she didn't have to explain her existence. And that is like the gift of the gathering that people have received to be in a Jewish space and when the doorman is a black man to not question why he's there. He could be just a member of the synagogue because he just belongs, you know? So just able to take space. That, that was a very meaningful experience for a lot of people and definitely for myself. I think it's more than the content. It was just being able to be and shed some of the skin that we have to carry and be on guard all the time, especially around Jewish institutions. In terms of your experience of the conference, can you tell us a bit about how it compared to Jewish community spaces that you've either been a part of or experienced in different ways in Montreal? Yeah, well, my history or experience with mainstream Jewish community in Montreal hasn't been positive. Often it's a place where I encountered racism the first time in my life is when I came to Montreal and being directly involved in the Jewish community. You know, a lot of the questions of how could you be black and Jewish or just an Ethiopian Jew who don't fit in within the mold of Ashkenazi or Sephardic way of doing it. And so there was always this sense of having to be perceived as other and having to explain my existence. But I was just a kid. I was seven, you know, and I came with my parents, immigrants with no English or French. And so I was kind of left alone. And that attitude within the Montreal Jewish community hasn't really evolved much. You know, when people think about Ethiopia, it's a very charitable way of looking at Ethiopians, needing assistance, not as a group of people who have contributed to the Jewish community and Judaism as a whole. Um, so because of those experiences, I've kind of turned away from the Jewish community uh, in Montreal, even though I did work as a community development animator with the Jewish Family Services back in the day. It's still not a space that I would find a home. And so how I came about to hear about the convening is because I participated in the leadership program with Benda Arc for Jews of Color. And so that was my kind of my first real attempt at entering the Jewish world, very hesitantly, I might add. And that was my first experience of being in a room of 20 other Jews who looked like my friends in, in a sense that they were just diverse. We had 20 people in the room who are not white, but who are everything else but that. And through that experience, I was one of the organizers. Leo participated in the leadership program and Hava as well. So I heard about the convening from them, and that's how I ended up making it there. And uh, coming, coming away from the conference, did you learn of any similar organizing that's happening on the side of the border? On the Canadian side? <laughs> When I did the leadership program, I was the first Canadian still residing in Canada. The one for the convening, I took my sisters with me, so I dragged them, and uh, they were quite happy as well. But uh, there was no discussion as to what was going on on the Canadian and 
And honestly, I have no idea what's going on with the Canadian Jewish community, particularly around, around people of color. I know what's going on with the Ethiopian Jewish community because that's the community that I'm involved with. But what's going on in Canada, I'm completely clueless. It would actually be nice to know how many people there are, how do people organize, if there's meetups or any of that stuff, and what the realities are for Canadian Jews of color versus American ones. When I was there, I was trying to kind of push the conversation further beyond the American scope and making like, well, there's this whole international dimension. And that continues to be where my interest is. Could you talk a little bit more about that international dimension? Yeah, one of it is kind of like this whole construct of who gets to be defined as a Jew of color, who defines it and what the individual is and where they are located. A person in North America might define themselves as a Jew of color. For someone who's in Africa, there's no need to add that of color. And so how can we find a way, an inclusive way of identifying ourselves that doesn't always have to be in contrast to whiteness? or to white supremacy is a question that kind of floats around for me. I mean, we you talked a bit about this earlier on in the conversation, but I'm wondering if for, for listeners who are listening outside of the Canadian context, if you could talk a bit about the Ethiopian Jewish community within Canada and a bit of its relationship to Jewish communities more broadly. So the, the first Ethiopian Jew to come to Canada is actually my uncle, Baruch Tadanya, and that was in the early 80s. And the reason why I ended up having Ethiopian Jews in Canada was when there was the airlift taking place Sudan to Israel. And my uncle here was the person who mobilized and tried to get people here. And so we ended up having the largest diasporic Ethiopian Jewish community being in Montreal at a certain point outside of Israel. I mean, it's, it's still not a big number, but I think at the time it was maybe 150 of it. But we, we, did, we did get a lot of resistance. The Jewish community here in Montreal was pushing people to go to Israel. It's like this constant push for you shouldn't be here, telling people where to be as opposed to any other immigrant, then you get to choose. And so in the case of my parents who had four daughters, they felt that the, right, the place for them was to be in Canada to raise us, but the, yeah, the Jewish community wasn't very supportive of those ideas. And there's there just like a lot of, uh, a lot of challenges. Most of the Ethiopian community is very much involved with the Jewish community. They go to Jewish schools, they work in Jewish institutions. A lot of the women work as caregivers or like in the hospital. And they very much identify their primary community outside of the Ethiopian Jewish community is the mainstream Jewish community because of an Ethiopian not being able to practice Judaism and then coming here and they have the freedom to do so. That's the community where they feel at home. A good number of the population moved to Toronto in the early 90s. Montreal is very difficult uh, around employment, I think because of the language issues. And so when they moved to Toronto, they've also organized and continued to have a strong relationship with the Jewish community. So where you find Ethiopian Jews is very much tied to the Jewish community, whether it's Montreal, Toronto, or a very small number in Ottawa. All right, thanks again so much for, for talking with us about this. Yeah, 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 that went great. You guys are fun. Okay, thanks. <laughs> uh, but thank, thank you so much for talking. So, David, for the recommendation this week, 
I'm going to suggest an article by friend of the show, Aviva Stahl. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, what's the word when you say conflict? Is it conflict of interest? I mean, are you rec- recusing yourself from this recommendation? No, I'm not recusing myself, but me and Aviva know each other from a few years ago. Okay, cool. All right. Well, so Aviva wrote an article called The FBI's Manufacturing Terror Plots Against Jewish Americans. Oh, yeah, I saw that. And yeah, so I figured that we should just talk to Aviva to tell us what it's all about. Oh, great. Thanks for um, inviting me on. Um, So as some of your listeners may know, since 9-11, the FBI and the NYPD have been accused of engaging in entrapment, basically of like foiling terror plots that were manufactured largely by undercover agents or informants. And in a number of these alleged plots, vulnerable Muslims, Muslim Americans with like mental health problems or developmental delays, have been encouraged by undercover agents to attack synagogues. So in my story, I go into three different plots where this has happened. And in one of the cases, sort of what drove me to write the story now, um, this young American named Ahmed Farhani, he actually recently just tried to commit suicide in his New York prison cell. So, yeah, in a lot of ways, these alleged plots have had really, really devastating effects on the defendants. But, you know, obviously they've had devastating effects on American Jews. So on the face of it, the defendants all end up like planting fake bombs in front of synagogues. So I don't know if people followed the case of the Newburgh Four, but that was a case where these four uh, very vulnerable black Americans were eventually coerced or manipulated into bombing synagogues in Riverdale in the Bronx. So for Jewish communities, it means that they have these fake bombs that were built and provided by the FBI to put in front of the synagogues. So I think for what I'm interested in is, and what I explore in the story is how the undercovers and the informants coerce or manipulate the defendants into attacking Jewish targets and even incite them to say anti-Semitic things or take on anti-Semitic beliefs. But also how it's affected Jewish communities and how it's really driven divisions between Jewish and Muslim communities. So, I mean, how has the institutional Jewish community responded to this revelation? I mean, it's definitely really troubling. I think one important thing that listeners should know is that in 2005, there was this pot of money created called the Nonprofit Security Grant Fund. Uh, it essentially means that a nonprofit can get a grant funding from DHS if they're at perceived or believe that they're at risk of terrorism. And since the money was created, Jews have received something like 90% of the funding, which has been $150 million in the last 10 years. Um, and the, a lot of the Jewish institutions helped groups apply for funding. If you look at the packets that they've created to help synagogues or Jewish institutions apply, these plots are listed as examples that people can cite in their applications for how they should get funding. And a lot of the synagogues that have been directly impacted, like the synagogues in Riverdale, have gone funding after these alleged plots have taken place. And, you know, even the ADL in their literature talk about the problem posed by Muslim extremists, Muslim American extremists, homegrown extremists. And these plots I explore in my story are almost always cited as kind of the predominant examples of why Jewish Americans should be scared of Muslim American extremists. So you think there's like a, a symbiotic relationship between these these plots being constructed and these institutions receiving this fi- financing? I'm not saying that there's any sort of nefarious plot. I guess what I'm saying and what I try to explore in my story is the ways in which Jewish communities, rather than taking a critical stance on the way that entrapment operates, and even when I interviewed Oren Siegel at the ADL, he said, well, you know, there are bombs being put on the the doorstep of Jewish synagogues. And while that's true on its face, when you actually look at what happened, it's really much more complex. So in the case of the Newburgh Four, for example, 
you know, one of the kids who was involved in the plot, the reason that he agreed to get involved at all is because his brother needed a liver transplant. And the informant, the FBI informant, assured him that if he agreed to participate in this plot, that he would give him the money that his brother needed for his liver transplant. Uh, or in another case, the Ahmed Farhani case, the kid who just tried to commit suicide, the NYPD officer would show him films about what was happening in Palestine or talk to him about what was happening in the in the war on terror. And instead of, you know, the film would say the IDF is doing this or the Israeli government is doing this. And when the NYPD officer would talk to Ahmed Farhani about this, he would say, oh, it's the Jews. And in a lot of cases, the way that becomes an anti-Semitic plot or has anti-Semitic undertones is that the undercover or the informant encourages the target, the defendant, to believe that, you know, there's some war that the Jews and the Americans are fighting against Muslims, sort of incites and manipulates them into believing that that's what their worldview should be. So I think... For me, what's important is that rather than looking critically at how the FBI and the NYPD is really exploiting anti-Semitism to kind of security plots, Jewish institutions have just been totally willing to go along with the idea that they're real plots. And aside from the show notes where we're going to post a link to this article, where could folks see more of your work, see what you're up to? Well, you can follow me at Solidarity, so that's S-T-A-H-L-A-R-I-T-Y, or you can check out my website solidarity.com or you can search my name on the internet of you as well anybody has any thoughts or feedback totally open to it feel free to send me an email great thanks Aviva so that's it for the show again this week we mentioned it last week, but we're going to be releasing shorts in between each episode now. So this coming Wednesday, there'll be another offering from Treef in your podcast feed. And at risk of nagging, please give us a good rating on iTunes. Tell a family member, maybe a cousin. Oh, how come my cousin? Last time it was an aunt and an uncle. This time it's a cousin. Uh, okay. Cousin Appreciation Week. And once again, if you're listening this far, thank you, first of all. But second of all... We are always accepting submissions. We have a submission guideline on our website and really would like to hear what ideas you have for the podcast. Yeah, and uh, any feedback you have, we'd love to hear it, negative or positive, uh, trafepodcast at gmail.com. Podcast is Sam Bick and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CKUT 90.3 FM, where we record the podcast under the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganyagahaga territory. As always, thanks to Sack Syndrome and SoCalled for the music, to Kira Page for social media consultancy, to Claire Hertig for design, and to Isaac Stetham, our Hampstead correspondent. Please follow us on your favorite podcast app and on all the social medias at Trafe. Wait, Sam, it's actually the plural of media is still media. And on all the social medias at Trafe, T-R-E-Y-F. See you next week. Totally, yeah, we were all up in Positive Force, for sure, and played at, like, the Positive Force house, right? Wasn't there a, mm-hmm. a benefit shows and all kinds of things? Stay tuned for David and Leo's spin-off podcast, <laughs> Post-Hardcore uh, Punk. 90s punk uh, activism and straight-edge. <laughs>